Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5, and we will read verses 18 through 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life." Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As we find our way further and further into the book of John, you have probably noticed that it becomes in some places increasingly difficult to interpret But the interesting contrast to that, especially in this particular text, is that the simplicity of what is being communicated here is fundamental to the Christian faith, and at the same time, it is, in fact, one of the most ignored practices in Christendom today. The reality that the obvious and necessary implication of this text is something that so many, many people who claim to know Jesus Christ completely ignore and give little or no attention to in their lives. And so what I'm trying to tell you here is that while the theology of this in places is difficult, it's not impossible, but the reality is just a cursory reading of the text, along with repeated readings of this text, will bring you to the place where you will be challenged. You'll be challenged to ask the question, Am I being faithful to Jesus Christ in the simplest of ways? You saw that statement there reads that this morning we will see the equality, unity, and sovereignty of Jesus and the Father so that we will rest in his resurrection for eternal life. In an effort to understand this reality and really rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our own eternal life, Point number one, I want you to see that Jesus and the Father are equal in nature. This is preposterous to the Orthodox Jew, to the Old Testament Orthodox Jew who wasn't really the Orthodox Jew. You know what I mean by that? The one who missed the point of biblical Judaism, uh, the one who engaged in his own legalistic practices, the one who subjected himself more so to the Mishnah or the Talmud, those lists of rules that were added to the Old Testament law. We spent some time, and we'll look back again at it this morning, what the Sabbath was, what the Sabbath is, why and how so many people in our day still misunderstand the Sabbath and therefore while giving themselves to an allegiance to a wrong understanding of the Sabbath, therefore miss out on the beauty of the real meaning of the Sabbath. 
As I said, Jesus and the Father are equal in nature. The text reads plainly, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Uh, in our day, it's odd that so many people don't know that Jesus declared himself to be God, and yet the Jews were pretty clear about that. So clear on it that they intended to take his life. But as you know, he slipped away from them numerous times. And in the proper timing, in God's sovereign timing, as he declared, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, but also to take it up. Last time, which has been a few weeks ago now, we covered the matter of whether or not Jesus was actually breaking the Sabbath. John here is really referring to the mindset of the Jews when he says that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. He certainly broke their concept of the Sabbath by healing the paralyzed man on a Saturday. They had over 600 additional laws that would not only have prevented Jesus from healing a man, but would have prevented the man from carrying his own mat or even walking. He was certainly working, Jesus. Verse 17 says, My father is working until now, and I am working. So if it is to violate or break the Sabbath by working, then there's a sense in which he was. But they were confused about the Sabbath. In the same way that so many today who profess to know Jesus Christ are so confused that they don't even involve themselves in the church. In the same way, the Judaistic Jew, the unorthodox, the unsaved Jew of this day, of Jesus' day, was so involved in his religious burdens, those things that he tied up for others to be implementing in their lives. He was so committed to... Uh, falsely persuading others to believe that he was committed to those burdens, and yet, as Scripture says, he wasn't really even lifting a finger to do that. The fourth commandment goes like this. Exodus 20, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So this is the basis, right? This is where so often you'll get into a discussion with someone about the Sabbath, and you say, well, it's obviously a commandment. And you've even heard people say things like, well, you know, that's one of the big ten. You've heard that, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." So yes, for certain, without question, uh, not only is this command clear that the Sabbath day was for rest, it was to be kept holy, there are other implications that go along with it. This is the longest of implications with the Ten Commandments, and so it was important. It was not as if it was an option, and like I told you last time, it's not like God said, you know, I've come up with nine commandments, I'd like to make it an even ten, so I don't know, I'll just deal with Saturday or something. No, there was a reason for this. God chose to rest, not because he was tired, not because he needed to rest, but so that he would establish a pattern for Old Testament Israel that their lives would be a foreshadowing of what eternity held. The ultimate Sabbath is in heaven, and really the ultimate, ultimate Sabbath is Jesus himself. Our rest is in him. We'll see that in Scripture as we go here. In chapter 31 of Exodus, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel, right? Don't forget that part. You're to speak to the people of Israel. Now, this is where covenant theology gets really problematic. The deeper you go into a devotion to what's called covenant theology, the more you're going to get confused about the distinction, the clear distinction between Israel and the church. Romans 11 is pretty clear. There is a future for national Israel that does not involve you and me. And that's okay, because what does involve you and me is perfectly great. It's exactly what you and I need to be ultimately blessed by the Lord. You don't need the blessing that is reserved for and set aside specifically for national Israel. It's what God has set aside for them. It's an earthly reality, but in heaven, we will all be together experiencing Sabbath in the Sabbath himself, the Lord of the Sabbath, 
Jesus Christ. But here, Moses is told by the Lord, you're to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And we pointed out last time that God did not cease from all work. He only ceased from the work of creation, and he has never picked that work back up. Everything that is created was created in six 24-hour days. God ceased from that work, but as we pointed out, he continued his work of regeneration. He continued his work of love. He continued his work of blessing his people. He still does that to this day. The Old Testament Sabbath day was a sign of the Sabbath rest to come. It was required of Israel to rest on that day, Saturday, in adherence to the Old Covenant commandment to do so. This was the Old covenant. It was God's agreement. And we say, as we sang this morning, that the eternal word of God is unchanging. And some would say, well, sure seems like there's changes to me. There are not changes in the word of God. The word of God in its perfection reveals, you ready? Dispensations. That God delivers different economies for different eras, different practices for different times. As you well know, the sign gifts were for a time, and they ceased, as Scripture said they would. The sacrificial system was for a time. The sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice coming in the person of Jesus Christ. It was a shadow, this Sabbath. It's not the real Sabbath. It's a foreshadowing of the real Sabbath. Sabbath in the same way or in similar ways as baptism is not real baptism, right? Water baptism is a picture of Holy Spirit baptism. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The sacrificial system had a purpose, but it didn't perfect anybody. It foreshadowed what would. Verse 8 of Hebrews 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with The first. What's the first? It's the first covenant. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Pretty simple. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all which is an ultimate slam. It's uh, really an execution of Roman Catholic theology that says that Jesus needs to re-die for every sin. It's mystical, it's silly, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what they do. Why? Where did that theology come from? It came from an effort to manipulate people by making them feel guilty for their sin. Look what you do every time you sin. You're re-killing Jesus. Nothing more than manipulation, and it's silly. The book of Hebrews is probably the greatest attack next to the book of Romans on Roman Catholic theology. But in the New Covenant, there is no such command. In fact, because the Old Testament practice was a temporary requirement, 
only for Israel, and because its purpose was completed, it was repealed. Colossians 2, 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You remember me saying every one of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for the fourth, which is not repeated but repealed. And here is where Paul does that quite clearly with a theocentric, concentrated statement. Let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a Sabbath. You're no longer, in fact, you and I were never required to uphold the Sabbath because we were never Israel. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow pointed to the substance. The foreshadowing pointed to that which was the real thing. And ultimately, as I said, Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. This is not some platitude when we say Jesus is our rest. You know, we're not speaking in some mysterious term. You know, just kind of just trust Jesus and you'll get rest. That's not, that's not the idea. We aren't speaking in a meaningless expression. Our rest is in him. Why? Because in Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you know the context of Matthew 11, you know he's talking about legalism. He's talking about personal legalistic performance. He's not talking about, you know, so you've had a rough week at work. Uh, you know, your, your spouse isn't treating you well for the last couple of months. That's not what he's talking about, although you will get comfort in that scenario by gaining comfort and peace here. Why? Because this is the peace that surpasses all understanding. When you have rest in Christ and you can say, my salvation is not dependent upon my performance, my salvation results in my obedience. I want to serve the Lord, not out of fear for wanting to maintain some kind of good pleasure with him or to keep me out of trouble with him, but because of what he has done for me, that I might glorify him. And it is incumbent upon us to please the Lord. And how do we do that? By resting in the Lord and what he has done. Not what you or I think we can do to accomplish his good pleasure but by resting in what he has done to accomplish his good pleasure. This is so critical for your maturity. So often, when someone is not maturing, you say, what's the deal? Why is this person who has professed Christ for so many years and you can't, they can't get over their bitterness. They can't get over the practice of gossip. They can't get over the idea of jealousy. They can't get over sexual immorality. What's the deal? So often, this is what it comes down to. The belief that they somehow buy their actions, right? They rest in their actions. Well, I teach Sunday school, you know? I'm working on the renovation on our church building. You know, you fill in the blank. It's always something that placates their own conscience. Rather than starting the day by reading the Bible, let's get real simple. Rather than starting the day by resting in the person of Christ and what he has accomplished and becoming a person who increasingly passionately wants to communicate that truth of rest to others. This is not to say that you don't obey the Lord, that you don't obey the law. You do because you rest in him and what he has accomplished. and Your conscience is clear. You can do that with joy rather than thinking you're on the precipice of God's wrath because perhaps you don't even know the Lord. You rest in him. You walk in him. He is the Sabbath. Hebrews 3.10 says, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said... They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Why? They didn't obey him. They wouldn't enter the rest of the Lord. They wouldn't enter God's Sabbath. They were compelled to be disobedient. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Yeah, think, think of this, you know, the, the person who practices some kind of religious action for a few months or even a few years, maybe even two or three decades. And then the more he or she is exposed to sound theology, the more he or she becomes disinterested and really develops a disdain for it. It's offensive. Repeatedly hearing truth that challenged this person, this person to acknowledge whether or not his or her faith is even real. Hebrews 4.9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You could say it this way. It's not about your works. It's about his works. Verse 11, Hebrews 4, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. This is why I keep repeating this phrase. Work hard to rest. I think in practical terms, as you develop your daily schedule for life, you know, I sent you that growing in godliness tool that I hope has been useful to you. So many of you have told me that it was. One of the things I've encouraged you to do is work hard to rest. It's a practical application just in life that you need sleep. Now, listen, don't let me inadvertently persuade you to think that that's a direct application of what we're talking about here. I'm simply saying it's an illustration should help you understand that when you rest in him and what he has accomplished, you will be refreshed. Similarly to how when you rest well by getting the same number of hours of sleep each night, same time frame, you're going to be more and more refreshed. It is to be refreshed, to rest in the Lord. Again, verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's dealing in the New Testament era here. He's dealing in the church. Let us help each other. The person who says, well, that's none of your business. What I do, where I move, what I, where I work, where I go, it's none of your business. Okay. All right. No problem. You're not part of the church. You're not part of the church. That's your decision. Then, you know, I would never, ever attempt to force anyone to subject himself to the body of Christ. But the rest that comes in Christ comes via the body of Christ. And so many of you, as I look out around the room, have testified to that. You've enjoyed the joy and the rest of the body of Christ so greatly. But then this is kind of the crux. I think, you know, if, if you're having trouble tracking at this point, then focus on this one verse. I think if you leave with anything this morning and it's only one thing, I would hope it would be this, verse 12. And I hope that you see it in its proper context now that we've walked up to it at this point. But to have this deeper, more foundational context for Hebrews 4.12, now that we've been up to it, you listen as I read. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now you have that verse in its context. The context of that passage leads you to the place where your relationship with Jesus is bound up in your relationship with his word. Very much like your relationship with those that you really love, right? You talk to them, don't you? And they talk to you. You have this interaction. God's love for you, his rest for you, his Sabbath for you is communicated via his word. You want to have a rich, restful relationship and experience in the Christian faith with the Lord Jesus Christ? Read your Bible. Submit yourself to sound Bible teaching. When you're serving in our children's ministry on a Sunday morning for two weeks in a row, listen to the sermon. And recognize that the sermon, I hope you know this, is not just some sermon that I happen to preach or Michael or Rick or what missionary happens to be here or whoever that just said, you know, I'm going to do this. It's for you as a member of this local body. It is critical for your spiritual development as a faithful member of this local body. And if you're not listening online, then please start. 
that the word of God would reach down deep into the crevices of your soul and help you see yourself for who you really are. One of the greatest and most obvious traits of the new believer is that he has very little self-awareness often. He does not really understand how foolish some of the things he says really are. Well, that's because he's a Christian baby. Now, don't feel offended by that. It was true of me. It's true of every one of us in here who is actually in the Christian faith. We said silly things, which is why one element of good, solid discipleship is to help someone restrain their lips. You know, it might be better if you just didn't talk for a while. Right? I mean, because think of how often you have said things, even as a mature Christian, that you thought, wow, if I could take that back. How much more so for the immature new believer? He ought to be loaded with questions. He ought to be pleading with someone to help him understand, especially, listen, especially the person who's lived a life of legalism for years that he, when he's exposed to that legalism, he recognizes that his faith was not real. Why? Because he needs so much correction. He's going through spiritual detox. He's got to get that stuff out. How does that happen? Displacement with sound theology, discipleship, sound teaching, counseling, occasional rebuke, lots of correction, lots of love via interaction over the Word of God. The fact that Jesus and the Father have the same nature is reflected in the reality that Jesus has given us a Sabbath rest. His kindness to us is such that he being equal with God in their deliberations together, if we can even call it that, have shown their kindness to us by giving us this Sabbath rest. So did Jesus break the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Ultimately, he can't break the Sabbath, but he certainly broke the Sabbath in terms of its misconception by the Jews. But he declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. John says, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood him to be declaring his equality with God the Father. And again, this is why they sought to kill him. This would have been the highest form of blasphemy, claiming to be God. Listen to this from Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Down in verse 25, to whom then Will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So there is one God. We read this in Deuteronomy. There is one true God. And so the question being asked by the Lord is, who is there that can compare to me? There is one true God. No one compares. Philo said, the mind is self-centered and godless when it deems itself to be equal with God. And this would, of course, been prevalent in the mind of the Jew that a person who claimed equality with God was out of his mind. He was blaspheming to the degree that he really should be and likely was bringing God's judgment upon himself. And the Jews had no problem trying to implement that judgment, that execution, by doing what? Picking up rocks to stone him, right? Numerous times they attempted to kill him. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, you see this text that is most often referred to as Satan's fall. Uh, really, it's the king of Babylon, and it very likely is Satan, but what we know for sure is that this is the king of Babylon. Listen, listen as I read. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. 
Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? So the one who declared his deity, similar to Nebuchadnezzar, look how great I am, look at what all I have done, draws attention to what he did and even declares himself to be the most high. This is treacherous. And so the Jews would have been thinking that this is what Jesus was doing to himself and therefore was invoking their punishment upon him, their execution of him. Ezekiel 28 says of Hiram, the prince of Tyre, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God. I sit in the seats of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, Thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say... I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So again, the Jews who would have been looking on at Jesus' clear declaration that he is the Son of God, that he is one with the Father, that he himself is equal with God, would have been certain in their minds that this was blasphemy that warrants execution. But Jesus' deity was established back in John chapter 1, you remember? We started our study in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then we see him as God incarnate, God in the flesh in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But the Jews weren't persuaded. John 10.31 says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is that miraculous reality of the dual nature of Jesus Christ. He is very God of very God and very man of very man. This is an impossible reality. It is the miraculous reality that only God can accomplish. And while the unbeliever looks on scoffing and says, that's impossible, that can't be true, this is also true of those who have been in the church for years when we look at truths that seem to oppose one another, but yet they are miraculously true. In John 10, 36, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. 
Jesus was equal with God, not because he was another God who was of the same rank, but because he is God, the second person of the Trinity in eternity past. And then probably my favorite passage to deal with with regard to this is John 8, 58. Your father, actually verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to the Jews. Your father Abraham knew this day was coming, and he actually saw it. He rejoiced. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's Yahweh. That's the term Yahweh. Before Abraham was, you've heard me say it before. Some of you are probably quoting it in your head right now. It means to exist. It's an infinitive. Before Abraham was, to exist. They knew at this moment he was declaring himself to be Yahweh. These were the exact same words spoken in the Septuagint. When he said them, they knew that he was blaspheming, at least in terms of what their definition of a blasphemy was. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John 20, verse 26, where the disciples had gathered after Jesus' resurrection, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas was slow. Thomas needed more proof. But listen to how Jesus responds to Thomas's eventual belief. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How's that happen? The Sabbath rest in the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12. They believe because the Word of God has power in the life of the person that God regenerates. It changes a life via the proclamation of the Word of God. Could happen this morning. Are you praying? You trust in the Lord? A person that, you know, you wonder, does he know the Lord? Does, does she know the Lord? It seemed like it, but I'm not sure. That could happen this morning. The miraculous reality of God regenerating a dead person unto new life. Colossians 1.19, listen to this. For in him all, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is very God of very God. He's not less God. He's not secondary. He didn't become a God, as Mormons teach. Hebrews 1.3, listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Same nature. Same nature, that's our point. Jesus and God share the same equal nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3 says. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul refers in Philippians 2.6 to the circumstances in which Jesus, who is equal with God, displays humility as the God-man as an example to all those who would follow him. He says, have this mind among yourselves. He's about to tell you and me what attitude to have all the time. And he goes real deep. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, you need to practice this. You need to remind yourself. You need to preach this to yourself, to have this attitude. But he says, it is yours. You've been given this mind, this mindset, this attitude, this hard attitude, but practice it. What is it? Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's not to say that he gave up that equality. It is to say that he didn't grasp it so tightly that he was not willing to become incarnate and to become a defenseless baby who remained God and divested himself temporarily of his deified prerogatives. This takes us naturally and quite smoothly, I think, into point number two. Jesus and the Father are united in works. Not only are Jesus and the Father equal in nature, but they are united in works. While Jesus, the God-man, is equal with God, he subordinates himself before the Father in the Incarnation. And in verse 19, we read, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Fast forward with me to John chapter 7 and verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus here is clarifying this reality that in his lack of willingness to grasp or cling to his deified prerogatives, he, being unwilling to grasp that for a time, chose at the same time to subject himself to the Father. We call this the subordination to the Father. He was unwilling to cling to his equality with God, and in so doing, while remaining equal to God, gave up for a time his deified abilities. You remember back in 517 where it says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. The father and the son were working on the Sabbath, at least as far as the Jews understood it, and their work was a work of unity. Jesus is willing to subject himself to the father's subordination of him Verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. This reflects the natural father-son reality, wherein a son follows and imitates his earthly father, much like Jesus would have done with his carpenter father, Joseph. This is such a great joy for fathers. Uh, Some of my greatest memories are with my sons, teaching them how to use a power drill, uh, teaching them how to ride a bicycle, how to throw a football. What great joy for a father to teach his son, to teach his children, and what great joy for children to rest in their father's supervision of them, their father's instruction, really, their discipleship of them. Jesus had this relationship with Joseph, or Joseph would have taught him carpentry. But in the same way, Jesus, as a man, subjected himself to the fatherhood of the eternal Father. It's not to say that he wasn't the Son of God in eternity past. He was. But this sonship takes on a whole new perspective in that while on the earth, he can exercise this trust that is exemplary for you and me. It's the kind of trust that you and I can look at and say Jesus is our example in trusting the Father. He trusted the Father by saying, I'm just going to do what I see my Father doing, and so the work is perfectly unified. There's no disparity between the work of the Son and the work of the Father. Why? Because the Son watched The Father, he subjected himself to his word, subjected himself to what he was actually doing in the moment. Therefore, there is no option for disunity. This would have been preposterous for the Jews to think that somehow God the Father had an actual son and that that son would claim God to be his father. 
The Jews were not accepting of such intimacy between the Father and anyone. It was foreign to them. It was offensive as it spoke not only of intimacy, but equality and unity with which they were unfamiliar. D.A. Carson says, It's impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over against the Father as another God. For all the Son does is both coincident with and coextensive with all that the Father does. Carson then goes on to quote Westcott, who says, Perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. Carson goes on to say, It follows that separate self-determined action would be a denial of his sonship. But if this last clause of verse 19 takes the impossibility of the Son operating independently and grounds it in the perfection of Jesus' sonship, it also constitutes another oblique claim to deity. For the only one who could conceivably do whatever the Father does must be as great as the Father, as divine as the Father. End quote. So in verse 20, John says, For the Father loves the Son. Jesus says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. It's a father-son relationship. Is that beautiful or what? It's so easy for us to think in terms of the divine relationship that the Father shares with the Son in such a way that we can't peek in. But no. Jesus speaks of his relationship with the Father in such a way that it sets an example for those of us who want to have that kind of relationship with our fathers, with our sons. What beauty, what joy. And that it's reflected in the works of Jesus, which are the works of his Father. The intimacy of a right relationship between a father and son is what Jesus points to here. And he does it with such ease and certainty that it befuddles the Jews in their legalistic view of God the Father. Their view of him is reflected in the Mishnah. And I'll read to you from the Mishnah, chapter 7, verse 5. He who blasphemes is liable only when he will have fully pronounced the divine name. That's sad. In an effort to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, what did they do? They chose not to say it. How sad. R. Joshua B. Korah says, On every day of a trial, they examine the witnesses with a substituted name. When there's a trial going on, and there was an effort to show the guilt of those who had misused God's name or used it, because using it is to misuse it in their minds. He says, on every day of a trial, they examine the witnesses with a substituted name, such as, may Yossi smite Yossi. Doesn't mean God, doesn't have anything to do with God. But everybody knew it was a substitute, so as not to incur God's wrath for misusing it. Once the trial is over, they would not put him to death on the basis of evidence given with the euphemism, but they put out everyone and asked the most important of the witnesses, saying to him, say what exactly did you hear? The person that's on trial is the person who's supposedly taken the Lord's name in vain. So they take him in there privately where the audience is very small. There aren't that many people to be defiled. And they ask him, say exactly what you heard him say in detail. And he says what he heard. And the judges stand on their feet and tear their clothing and never sew them back because what's being quoted is the actual name of God. And it's, it's blasphemy, but there's a sense in which it has to be done in order for the court to be realistic. And the second witness says also, I heard what he heard. I'm not going to repeat it the second time. Incur that much more wrath. And the third witness says, also, I heard what he heard. And there were more works of the Father to come that the Son would see. Greater works. But without an understanding of the intimacy between the Father and the Son, such that the Son himself speaks the Father's name 
but he claims it as his, own, as his own name. And the people looking on, the people listening in, all they can do is see it as blasphemy because no one could speak the Father's name. And here Jesus is not only speaking the Father's name, he's speaking of him as his Father intimately. So the Jews looked on. And so where it is stated that there would be more works, that the Father would show more works, even greater works to the Son, the Jews showed no interest in that. But what about you and me? Are you interested in seeing the great works of the Father that the Father has shown to the Son that you and I would be involved in those great works? Verse 20 goes on, and it's very clear. Greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Do you marvel at what you read in the Word of God with regard to the works that God has done? Brad gave a very clear explanation this morning of the fact that when we say, Speak, O Lord, we're saying, Speak through your written word that we have, not through some dream or a vision or writing on the wall, but God, give us your word that we would marvel at your word and that we would see when these marvelous works have taken place in your word, we have the privilege to see them take place even in our own lives. Look at the rest of this unity in John 8, 29. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You catch that? As he was saying these things, as Jesus was speaking of the unity that he shared with the Father, as he spoke of his relationship with the Father, people believed in the moment. Hebrews 1.8 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. You see what's happening here? God is calling God, God. God the Father calls God the Son, God, and he speaks of the greatness and the eternality and the perpetuation of his works that continue to take place. The works that the Son observed the Father doing and the Son in turn did himself and that you and I have observed in our own hearts. The works over which we in fact should marvel. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This was the works of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in eternity past, just prior to, if we could even say it that way, the creation. So God himself, God the Son, exercising the work of creation, stepping then into time, space, and history so that he would then, even though he is the creator, become a defenseless baby, grow into manhood, and as a result, observe his father's works. That is an act of humility. That is an act of unity that the unity of the Father's and the Son's works would be on display, that people would marvel over them. It was a work of unity in the creation credited to the second person of the Trinity who subjected himself not only to the Father, but also to his own creation. Carson says here, the very obedience and dependence that characterize Jesus' utter subordination to the Father are themselves so perfect that all Jesus does is what the Father wills and does. So it is nothing less than the revelation of God. Small wonder that Jesus will later declare, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. End quote. The Father and the Son are united in their works because the Son is is unwilling to do anything other than what he, as the incarnate God-man, the Son of God, sees his Father doing. This is unity in works 
because of equality in nature. It's equality in deity. Our third point addresses the specific work of unity that the Father and Son share in their sovereignty over eternal life and judgment. Jesus and the Father are sovereign over eternal judgment. I encourage you in preparation for next week to read this text again because we'll finish up with this next week. We're out of time. But I do want to call your attention to this reality that the Father and the Son exercise judgment together. The Father leaves judgment in the hands of the Son, but he also leaves eternal life in the hands of the Son. And while Jesus has the authority, the ability, the deity, the sovereignty to exercise judgment, we are told to marvel over the reality that he, in fact, exercises mercy and grace by extending that mercy to all those who would believe. As we wrap it up here, I want to remind you of the woman from Samaria Jesus met at the well, Jacob's well. You remember he had said to her that what the Lord is looking for is those who would worship in spirit and in truth. In John 4.35, it says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So after this woman has come to know him, come to rest in him as the Sabbath rest, she's forgiven of her sins, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Now these are those somewhat dense disciples uh, who along the way have heard truth over and over again. And here's a woman who immediately exercises faith in him, and she does what the faithful person does. And while she's doing that in town, he says to them, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. The woman whose life was utterly and prolifically sinful, committed to repeated adultery. She displayed her sin before him, really confessed it to him. He could speak about her in such a way that gave evidence that her own testimony was having an impact on the Samaritans in Sychar. It says that she said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, if you have seen that Jesus is the God-man yourself, if you have seen that he is equal in nature with the Father and that he is united with the Father in his works, the works of judgment and granting eternal life, if you will acknowledge your sin before him with repentance, confession, forsaking it, you will see that he has mercifully in his sovereignty granted you eternal life and you will escape that judgment. And if you've been granted eternal life, Others will believe because of your testimony. They will believe because of your testimony and they will want to be with him and they will eventually believe no longer because of your testimony but because they will come to know that he is the savior of the world. And so my challenge to you and to me this morning is to ask the question, is your testimony of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross 
resulting in others looking at your testimony and wanting to spend time with him? And is the result, as, as you assess what's happening in those circumstances, is the result then that they would say that it's no longer your testimony. I hung on your testimony for a time. It's no longer your testimony, but I now understand that he is the savior of the world. You ask yourself that question. Is that, at the very least, the fragmented testimony of your life? You can rejoice in that, that the Lord is using you to produce that kind of testimony in others, that they would say, I no longer just kind of hang on what you believe, but I'm resting in the person of Christ. And I believe that He is the Savior of the world. Therefore, I want to worship Him. I will acknowledge his equality in nature with the Father. I won't worship a false god of Mormonism. I will acknowledge that he is united in works with the Father. He does nothing that is not the will of the Father, that he has not seen from the Father. And I will acknowledge that he is sovereign with the Father over eternal life and also over judgment. And I will thank him that I have escaped that judgment by his sovereignty. And I will do all that I possibly can to communicate the truth of the gospel to those around me that they too would be willing one day to say, I no longer believe because of your testimony. But I believe because he is in fact the savior of the world. Lord, we are grateful for the savior of the world, our savior, Jesus Christ. And we plead with you, Father, even now to give us a greater fullness of joy in the rest that you have provided for us in him. Lord, every single one of us knows people who are deceived in a false conversion. And of course, we know people who live in sin blatantly, even as the Samaritan woman. But we believe, Father, that just as you dramatically changed her life, you can do that with a similar person today. Just as you overturned the heart of the hypocrite Paul, you can do that with the hypocrite today. You've done that with so many of us. We plead with you, Father, that our testimony of the person of Christ would result in the salvation of those whom we know and love, that we would be willing to say, he told me everything that I had ever done and his blood has covered it. We ask this in his name. Amen.